Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Jeb Kuiper. Jeb is the CEO of Boston-based Nimbus Therapeutics. Nimbus made news in December when it sold its experimental TIC2 inhibitor to Takeda Pharmaceuticals for $4 billion up front and another $2 billion in potential milestones. The drug's value skyrocketed when it hit the primary endpoint of a Phase 2b clinical trial for psoriasis. Nimbus hasn't disclosed the detailed results of that study, but the pill is said to have best-in-class potential when compared with a first-in-class molecule from Bristol-Myers Squibb. Takeda is imagining all kinds of other possible uses for this anti-inflammatory medicine for psoriatic arthritis and inflammatory bowel disease, among other indications. This is quite a victory for any small biotech company. But there's more to the story. Nimbus got to this point after investing for more than a decade in its physics-based computational drug discovery platform. It was among the early adopters seeking to use high-performance computers to model the best possible small molecule drug interactions against a given target. And the model didn't just work once. Nimbus sold a previous small molecule drug candidate for non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, a chronic liver disease, to Gilead Sciences. Jeb is a chemist by training, spent a good early part of his career in pharmaceutical business development, and joined Nimbus as chief business officer in 2014. He became CEO in 2018. I've known Jeb for a number of years, and he happens to be a member of the inaugural Timmerman Traverse for Life Science Cares campaign in 2021. I've been trying to get him on the show for about a year, and I'm really glad I was able to sit down with him in person at the recent JP Morgan Healthcare Conference in San Francisco. I think this is an especially thoughtful and absorbing conversation that will be of interest to a wide range of people in biotech. And now for a word from the sponsor of the long run, the Bio CEO and Investor Conference. Now in its 25th year, the Bio CEO and Investor Conference is a premier event connecting biotech leaders from established and emerging public and private companies with the investor and banking communities. You can expect limitless networking, on-point sessions crafted by impressive industry experts, polished company presentations, and making important connections powered by bio one-on-one partnering. We look forward to seeing you February 6 to 9 in New York and virtually. Register now at bio.org slash CEO. And I'll personally add that I've attended bio CEO a few times, most recently in February 2020 in New York. I interviewed Jeremy Levin there for an episode of the Long Run Podcast when he was bio chairman. It's the kind of meeting where biotech newsmakers can have productive dialogues with investors and other key players. Again, to register, go to bio.org slash CEO. Now, if you like listening to the long run, you'll love a subscription to Timmerman Report. This is where you can read my in-depth reports on the most interesting startups in biotech, my regular Friday Front Points column that concisely covers the issues of the week, plus insightful coverage of current topics in biotech from a rotating cast of contributing writers. Individual subscriptions are available on a monthly, quarterly, or annual basis. Group subscriptions provide a license to companies that have more than one reader, and they are available at a discount. Go to TimmermanReport.com and click on subscribe for more. 
and for sponsorship opportunities on the Long Run Podcast, or to inquire about bringing me to your company for a speaking engagement, see my business development representative, Stephanie Barnes. You can go to TimmermanReport.com and hit contact. Now, please join me and Jeb Kuyper on the long run. Jeb Kuyper, welcome to the long run. Thanks, Luke. It's great to be here. Great to see you, Jeb. You must be one of the most popular people around Union Square here at the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference, uh, having done one of the biggest deals of the year in 2022. Uh, what's it been like for you the first day? Um, well, Luke, first, it's really great to be back in person at the uh, uh, J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference in San Francisco. Um, and uh, it's great to see lots of folks and, and certainly uh, a lot of congratulations for the Takeda deal around our allosteric TIC2 inhibitor. Um, it's great. I guess I also get a, a few questions of, you know, why are you here, <laughs> um, given that you've just done this great big deal? Um, and uh, I'm sure we'll come on to that, but it's uh, it's been great to... Uh, uh, be at Nimbus and continue to work on on great drugs, which is what we're going to continue to design medicines, which is uh, what we've been all about. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I would definitely want to hear you tell that story of how the TIC2 uh, inhibitor came to be uh, and and uh, had the successful outcome that you had. Uh, but let's start with you and at the beginning. So, Jeb, where are you from? Allentown, Pennsylvania. Okay. Born and raised. And uh, what uh, what kind of neighborhood did you grow up in? Um, we were just on the edge of uh, Allentown. Uh, my dad um, was a truck driver. My mom was a homemaker. Um, and so I was a first kid to go to college. Um, and, uh, you know, Allentown at the time was a lot like, for those who will remember it, the Billy Joel song. Um, so it was kind of a bustling town after kind of the the, the wars and then, uh, you know, sank into a little bit of the malaise that uh, a number of uh, post-industrial towns uh, 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 sunk into. Um, but I had a, a, a good suburban kind of life growing up and uh, going to public school, but uh, a very different type of uh, community than, than maybe the one that has become my transplanted home in Boston. Um, when I, I uh, told my folks I was uh, uh, going to go to college and going to go up to Boston uh, to, and uh, lucky to go to, to MIT, I, I did have an uncle who was um, uh, incredibly interested that I, I'd pursue the, the family business of trucking at the Michigan Institute of Trucking um, uh, and had to inform that individual that that wasn't exactly where I was going. Yeah, but, you know, I um, I think you find lots of people from different walks of life, blue collar roots. Um, the both of us um, ended up in this industry. Uh, and, and there's a lot of people all over who have things to contribute. So, um, so how did you first get interested in science? So I, I was always a huge fan of, of science fiction, uh, Asimov, others just reading and being uh, a fairly good, um, uh, uh, a good geek as a kid, um, uh, chess club, debate club, um, and science was my favorite. And I had a phenomenal chemistry uh, teacher named Mark Case um, at Emmaus High School who really got uh, me interested into, into chemistry in probably my junior year of high school. Um, in particular, there was one experiment he'd do every year um, uh, where um, he would take an acid, uh, uh, kind of a beaker full of acid, a beaker full of base, and get the molar equivalents of the, the, the hydrogens, um, pour them together to make uh, effectively salt water. But he would do this in front of the class, 
mix them together, and then to show his conviction would drink it. And and everybody was, you know, just aghast that that he was going to kind of fall over. And of course, he was a bit theatrical. So then he falls behind kind of the desk, then he gets up and goes, no, I got the measurements exactly right. But it, it showed some of that excitement uh, around the science of chemistry. So I was always, I started to really, that was the first thing that got me interested in chemistry uh, that then continued on um, as as I started college. Well, who knew science could be this much fun and dramatic and you didn't have to take yourself so seriously. I mean, it was a, you know, it was the, it was the classic um, uh, Mentos and Diet Coke example. Actually, this was before Mentos and Diet Coke, but so analogous examples of those sorts of things. And um, whether it was biology, chemistry, physics, all of those uh, made a lot of sense. And, you know, fairly competitive growing up. So a lot of math leagues, uh, the other sorts of pieces that would get you interested in, in STEM careers that I just kind of naturally pursued. So you go off to MIT. How did you pay for this? Um, well, that was a big, <laughs> that was a big source of debate. Uh, again, in the family, um, I, I, I've got three kids right now, and they're they're pre-college, and we're starting to think about this and how many schools you approach and everything you do. Um, I have to say, um, I don't know that I approached it too well back then. Um, I, I applied to two colleges, uh, MIT and, and Penn State, um, and uh, got to both. Um, and uh, I was lucky to have that that choice, but it wasn't 12. Um, and I realized today that might have been a little bit foolhardy, um, but better lucky than smart, I guess, um, got there. Um, and MIT had a great approach uh, that the president at the time, Charles Vest, said that that actually spoke to me, which was, if, if you could get into MIT, um, we would ensure uh, that we found and you help find ways to pay for it, that we didn't want people saying no if they could make it academically to going in. And, and I really took that to heart and embraced it. It meant a lot of debt um, and, and a lot of debt that I, I carried actually for most into my adult life into my 40s. Um, uh, but I think it's been well worth it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Were you scared? Um, I probably ought to have been. Um, but I, I wasn't. <laughs> I was uh, uh, determined um, uh, at the time to succeed and, uh, uh, and enjoyed it, enjoyed the challenge. So uh, was it chemistry from the beginning? Was that your, your first love and you, you were sticking with it? It was. I, we, I had a, um, uh, a professor, Daniel Kemp, organic chemistry, um, uh, phenomenal uh, professor, um, uh, intro to organic chemistry. And uh, he had very long uh, white hair pulled back in a ponytail, kind of a, a hippie-esque vibe, and you know, walked into the class and said, you know, I've always been into chemistry. There's only two reasons to be uh, into chemistry, um, uh, uh, drugs and explosives, and um, I really don't like bombs. Um, and so this was a, you know, this was his intro of like, this is why you can really get into understand kind of, you know, uh, human uh, medicinal chemistry and interactions. But it was a great funny line that kind of had us imagining what he did as a, uh, a youthful professor. Um, but no, I loved, loved chemistry. Um, around somewhere around, um, this was in the, the early 90s. And, and um, uh, a friend of mine uh, said, listen, you know, and, and I think that for the students of the industry who have been in it for a long time will know this, um, it, it wasn't a great time to be a, a new chemist. It was uh, a lot of chemistry that that, that profession uh, was getting crunched a lot uh, by cost reductions and other things throughout the industry. Um, and a friend of mine said, well, listen, um, you know, I was thinking about paying for college and all of these things and said, listen, chemists really don't make a lot of money, uh, but chemical engineers do. Um, and, and so uh, a little foolishly, again, 
uh, I decided to double major in chemistry and chemical engineering. Okay. Okay. Now, were you thinking of chemistry taking you into the pharmaceutical industry at this time, or was it maybe something else, like go work for Dow or DuPont or something? I mean, Dow DuPont um, were certainly kind of the names uh, that get used to. Um, growing up in Allentown, I knew air products and chemicals um, that had an engineering bent. I, I, I certainly wasn't sure. Um, uh, Procter and Gamble uh, was there, and actually. Uh, interesting on the chemistry and chemical engineering side, some of the uh, Silicon Valley-based things like Intel was big, so in chip processing. Um, and then, of course, there was the petrochemical industry, uh, which was there as well, alongside the pharmaceutical industry. Um, I, I, I don't know, even know if I could place what it was other than within the, uh, the disciplines of you know physical chemistry, analytical chemistry, um, theoretical, experimentation. Um, uh, it really was organic chemistry that really drove my primary interest, which led me down the lines of let's look at pharmaceutical company options. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So when did that happen for you? And how did you kind of first work your way into pharmaceuticals? So I finished my, um, my chemistry degree at MIT um, and then uh, started in Groton, Connecticut at Pfizer Central Research um, yeah, as a as an incoming chemist, and there there was definitely a classification of the chemists who um, had graduate degrees were medicinal chemistry, had been postdocs. That that wasn't me. Um, I, I was that kind of you know young uh, undergraduate chemistry degree major coming in synthetic chemistry, you know, in the aspiring to be category. Um, and it was it was astounding, actually. I mean, just to, the the size and scope of the campus in Groton. This was the kind of the largest uh, center. It was called Central Research. This was kind of pre-Lipitor, pre the acquisition uh, of Warner Lambert. Um, and it was uh, it was an amazing experience. I loved it. Um, the first thing I loved was that I didn't have to wash my own glassware every day. Um, um, eventually, I realized that, that uh, uh, taking this road into the industry wasn't going to be the right path and that a graduate degree clearly was needed. Um, and so then I uh, started looking at PhD programs. So I took my GRE uh, and started applying to uh, PhD programs. Why did you think this was a dead end? The level of impact I saw chemists at the level I was just wasn't what I wanted to see out of my career. I asked questions like, well, why are we working on this program? And, and you know, what's the intent? And there were a lot of you know, journeyman types who were, we don't need to ask those questions. We get asked to run these sets of experiments and report these results. Here's how you do it. You come in, check the clock you know, good life, good wage, good company. Um, that, that, that definitely wasn't enough and didn't scratch my curiosity enough. Uh, so, so definitely decided to uh, pursue uh, an advanced degree. So you go back to graduate school and by now you're, you're focused on pharmaceuticals. I am. Yes. And uh, what was the big thing that you learned in graduate school? Well, I, I like um, a, a few folks had a choice of, of where to go to graduate school um, and uh, I decided I wanted to go back into a PhD program, but in chemical engineering. And I got into a number of programs, some great institutions uh, in the UC system and Stanford. Um, and uh, at MIT, you could not come back and do a PhD. Uh, you you could only do a you could only move up to a master's. It was kind of a departmental program requirement that they wanted uh, their students to have exposures to different uh, curricula, different academic institutions. Um, so while I could have come out to California and, and just started directly into a program, um, I, I decided, um, and partly at the time from a former girlfriend, to stay in Boston, um, go to MIT, uh, do my master's degree in chemical engineering. Um, and it was then 
um, that during that period of time, that instead of pursuing a PhD, um, I decided, wow, the business world is so interesting. I had a number of friends that started in management consulting roles, places like BCG and, and Bain. So I decided to, um, just for the heck of it, um, the year leading up to where I would switch to a PhD program and start the research portion, um, I applied to a number of consulting positions. Um, and I got offers, including an offer at McKinsey, uh, and decided to take my life to, uh, as a bunch of my chemist friends say, the dark side, um, and pivot and join management consulting. Now, what year was this? Uh, this was 2000. Okay. So what did you get to work on right away there at McKinsey? Well, thankfully, so I, I moved to the Mid-Atlantic um, and started working with groups out of the New York office uh, and, and moved to New York City, which was uh, a phenomenal uh, thing at early stage of my career, and uh, was working for pharmaceutical clients. Um, a lot of, pretty much every big pharmaceutical company hired McKinsey to do something or other and began working with different client service teams on various projects, but usually specific, specifically in R&D. And one of the more notable projects I remember working on uh, was back at Pfizer. And I went back and we were working for the head of R&D at the time, John Lamatina, a great guy, um, on trying to understand what attrition, what drove attrition in pharmaceutical pipelines. And I'm back on the same Samper grounds just a couple of years later. And the program that I had been working on in, in 98 um, ended up advancing to phase three and then failing and was the format of a Wall Street Journal article on why R&D is so expensive. It's all the cost of failures. Well, that program, back when I was working on it, we were asking those very same questions. It was a growth hormone secretagogue, trying to kind of return people's growth hormone levels to, if they're 70 years old, to what they were when they were 17 years old. But it didn't have really good clinical outcomes. And we knew that back when we were working on this program as it just started moving into the clinic. Um, and it was frustrating to see that, that that could have been a knowledge-based decision to terminate that program at that time and to be able to kind of engage senior leadership in a discussion around how you manage a fulsome R&D portfolio uh, actually was really, really educational. That's a painful lesson that a lot of companies learn at some point or another. It, it was it was quite stark to actually see how it featured a, like that same program came. I would have never thought that same program would have come back into my life, into my professional career now as a management consultant working with a pharmaceutical company. So you're, you know, doing the classic consulting thing. You're a young person. You're getting to deal with senior management. You're You're grappling with the big questions they're grappling with. And you thought business is for me. Businesses for me, applied to business school, um, but um, again, as a good geek, uh, decided to go back uh, to MIT once more, uh, couldn't couldn't help it, um, just really like giving that institution money. Um, actually, specifically, Sloan was a great business school, um, and one of the things that I was really attracted to was actually they had more co-curricula with Harvard Medical School uh, at the time and was able to actually start taking classes at Harvard Medical School. So was able to kind of uh, do an internship at MGH and, and work at their uh, T&E committee, um, uh, uh, go through the pharmacology class with the uh, the first and second year med students. Um, it was a great experience. I was definitely going along in the science side of what we do uh, in our industry. And that's a, been a little bit of my story and shtick of always trying to be that curious proto-scientist coupled with somebody who kind of um, gets and understands business. And I was still, you know, in, encouraging and feeding those behaviors back then. 
Well, this is part of the magic of the Boston Cambridge area. Where it's the candy store for you know intellectual inquiry. I mean, you've got MIT Sloan. You can study business. You can go just a few blocks away and learn about the the hard issues in biology and chemistry, and kind of put together your own kind of curriculum. And 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 the exposure to these legends in our industry. I mean, I remember it was on the MIT campus that I I first met. Um, Steve Holtzman, um, or or I fo- first met Rich Aldrich, and and just it was a remarkable place where you could kind of see Phil Sharp walking around and and yeah, talk, and you know, I mean, at one point you probably could try to find a catch where where Steelius Papadopoulos was, but like it was just such an amazing time, and you know, it, it's an interesting place, and um, I would say that coupled with the experience I had at McKinsey, because you know, at that point in time, um, uh, it. In, in the kind of New York area, uh, there were a lot of individuals um, that that really I feel have have kind of continued to shape my career and evolution. Uh, back in two thousands, when I met Bruce Booth of Atlas Venture, where we first met and started working together, uh, and McKinsey, um, it's where I met uh, Adam Koppel at, at Bain. It's it's uh, where Christoph Westfall came from of of kind of legendary fame and now Longwood. Um, just just Brett Zabar, you know, who, who's now at General Atlantic leading healthcare investing, just an incredible set of individuals who happened to be working contemporaneously at the time. Yeah, this is the power of networks. These are big people about the same age as you that um, have similar interests and they're going to go off and do all kinds of different things. I being the most junior of all of them, for sure. Okay, so you uh, you get all this education and then you decide at some point, I need to get a job. You go to, is this when you go to GSK? Um, yeah, so I, I joined uh, GlaxoSmithKline in, in uh, 2004. Um, and moved back to Pennsylvania. Yes. Uh, so, um, you know, one of those things where uh, leaving Allentown and moving to Boston was such a um, I had a lot of energy to do that. Um, I was ready to go to my people, all the good scientists. Um, and then uh, uh, wistfully, actually, the idea of moving back to Pennsylvania at that point in my life was great. Got married, wanted to start a family. Uh, my wife had taken a job. Um, at, at the time, I, I was able to go back to New York City and work for a little bit for McKinsey for a little bit more time. Uh, and she took a job at GSK. And then ex-McKinsey partner, um, in London actually contacted me about uh, joining GSK. And having that connection uh, brought me over um, into the R&D strategy group of, of GSK in 2004. Okay. So I was just going to ask, what did you do there at GSK? You were there for, I think, nine years? Uh, yeah, just it was just, just under 10. But um, I, I started and uh, when I first started, I, I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to move into business development. Um, but I actually started an R&D strategy group uh, working for the head of business development at the time. So the head of R&D uh, was a fellow by the name of Tachi Amada. Um, uh, Tachi is a great man. Uh, he has since passed uh, gastroenterologist by training um, uh, after uh, a long stint uh, uh, seeing overseeing Glaxo, uh, Welcome, and SmithKline Beach emerge and kind of leading the R&D organization there. Uh, he went on kind of quasi-retirement, uh, joined Decada, uh, obviously the Gates uh, Foundation and a few other places, really. He stayed pretty busy. He stayed pretty busy. Well, as, uh, anybody who knew Tachi knew that <laughs> retirement was that that was never the word that was going to be used. And uh, it certainly kind of we all mourned his his passing. Um, but but Tachi had been working with a, a protege named Monsef Slawi, um, uh, who is the head of business development at the time. So I started a program with Monsef. Um, and uh, only a couple, we felt like weeks after I got there, uh, Tachi announced his retirement and that Monsef was going to actually take over uh, R&D leadership at GSK. 
Um, and and Monsef asked me to join the R&D executive team kind of as that kind of chief of staff secretarial role. It was actually called the R&D secretary um, and um, uh, join him in kind of reshaping where it was going to go from there. Um, I, I, it was an incredible opportunity to network with some amazing people. I just knew I also wanted to move to business development. So we made a deal because um, he was in business development, said in 18 months, you know, do this for 18 months uh, and then join BD. So I, I did that for the first kind of 2004, 2005. And by 2006, I had joined the business development group at, at GSK. And the the company, like all big pharmas of this era, needed to look outside its own walls, be a little humble and say, there's some great assets out there. We should do some deals with these little biotech companies that nobody's ever heard of. Um, <laughs> and it was it was great. I, I you know during my time at, at GSK and business development, um, I I really got to see the, that biotech ecosystem, um, and I, I certainly developed um, relationships, friendships, you know, uh, camaraderie with a lot of the folks working in that industry. Um, uh, and in fact, you know, I stayed at GSK through through 2014. I, I joined the oncology executive team. Was doing a lot of work with Paolo Paletti, who was the, the head of oncology at the time, and the rest of the that executive team. Um, but I had met a number of interesting biotechs, including a, a little biotech called Nimbus, uh, Nimbus Discovery, actually, it was what it was called at the time. Um, uh, it was formed in, in 2009. I, and I, I first introduced to it and, and probably kind of it went in one ear and went out the other when I, I first kind of introduced it. But obviously, it's dominated the last eight years of my life. Yeah, well, we'll come back to that. So what, uh, what brought you to back to Boston then in 2014? Um, so I was working for the, um, uh, as I said, the, the the global president of our oncology business unit, Paolo Paletti, um, uh, as the uh, vice president of business development in oncology. And we were working on growing the oncology business at the time, led by, a you know, which was primarily a portfolio of tyrosine kinase inhibitors, um, in, including uh, lapatinib and pazopinib and a few others uh, that were um, reasonable commercial uh, successes, but no, by no means any kind of uh, blockbusters. And uh, the the architecture and leadership of of Galaxia at the time just really wasn't looking to make these serious level of investments that were needed to to really grow that business. Uh, at the time, you know, we needed to grow by about a billion dollars in revenue, and buying a dollar a year in revenue cost about ten dollars. And so we needed to go to the board for a couple billion dollar checks. And uh, you know, I think the board and and uh, the CEO at the time kind of understood that. And uh, they there was an alternative. And the alternative was to form a joint venture like they had done in HIV, a company called Vive with Pfizer. And we tried to work on that joint venture um, with Merck. Uh, and Merck really didn't have much of an oncology port portfolio. It had this one experimental drug called pembrolizumab. Um, and, uh, and, and we had a whole portfolio of other things. And, and we, we went all the way up to having conversations with Ken Fraser and, and uh, Andrew Whitty of having, you know, would we bring these organizations together? And Roger Perlman, the head of R&D at Merck at the time, uh, probably correctly uh, said, no, uh, we Merck want to keep all of, of Pembrolizumab. That sounds like he probably made the, the right call. Uh, but it was a consequence for GSK. And that consequence was, uh, at the time, they were going to get out of oncology. Uh, and so I remember that fateful day in London when I got called to the boardroom uh, and that news was shared with me. Um, and I learned that... Uh, I was being asked to lead that part uh, of a three-way asset deal with Novartis. And the idea behind this $25 billion deal was that GSK would sell Novartis its oncology 
um, business. Uh, Novartis would sell GSK its vaccine business, and they would form a joint venture in consumer healthcare, uh, which GSK ultimately took over. And uh, that that was a monumental moment. It was actually the largest deal I had ever worked on. Uh, but it was bittersweet because I had helped build oncology. I care a lot about working uh, for cancer patients. Um, and um, it, it, it was something where I, I, I made that decision that this was the time to kind of take a change in my career. I didn't want to stay at GSK. Um, I didn't want to go to Novartis, but I knew all of these little biotechs. And so I picked up the phone and started some calls and started to explore things. And, and in 2014, um, that's what led me to, to Nimbus. And that is actually what uh, 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 led us to move, my wife and I, to move our family uh, to Boston. Wow, that's quite a story. I mean, both with the pembrolizumab and how, well, there's a whole story there and how that almost got uh, lost in the in the clutter of the Merck Shearing Plow merger. Oh my gosh, yes. An Organon agent inside Shearing Plow and almost got thrown out baby bathwater style. Yeah. Yeah, there was that. And then, but by 2014, I remember a lot of people re reacting to the GSK Novartis deal, like, wait a minute, why are you guys getting out of oncology? This is the best time ever to be in oncology. And um, and then new CEO, and, you know, so Emma comes in, and then, and then uh, and these are all past my time. Emma comes in, brings in Hal, um, uh, gives Axel, who's the the authority, kind of go build oncology. And then they started rebuilding. And, start you know, now there are changes now, and Hal's moved on. So, I mean, it's, 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 I think that defines a little bit one of the challenges with building R&D in big pharma, um, that there are, um, it, it is hard to make decisions um, when, you know, CEOs of pharmaceutical companies, when they only have a couple of years of tenure to make a difference, you try to make a difference in that amount of time, yet the product cycles we have are, are multi-decade cycles. And I will tell you, oncologists, you know, that we were working with knew the GSK had moved in and out of the cycle and, and felt you know, that that detracted from their kind of credibility to kind of deliver product portfolios. So, look, I wish them the best on, on all of those. Those are very hard decisions for organizations. Yeah, yeah. But on a personal level, it is a good time to move on if, if cancer is what you want to do. This year's BioCEO and investor conference sessions cover the challenges you face, like weathering a challenging market, price control policy issues and exciting treatment advances. More than 100 company presentations are already scheduled. Here's what Philip Ross, global chairman of J.P. Morgan Healthcare Investment Banking, has to say. Quote, the BioCEO and Investor Conference offers a collaborative forum where executives, investors, and industry stakeholders can come together to learn and exchange ideas about innovation in the biopharma ecosystem. Join us February 6 to 9 in New York and virtually. Explore the program and register at bio.org slash CEO. And if you like listening to The Long Run, you'll love a subscription to Timmerman Report. This is where you can read my in-depth reports on the most interesting startups in biotech, my regular Friday Front Points column that concisely covers the issues of the week, plus insightful coverage of current topics in biotech from a rotating cast of contributing writers. Individual subscriptions are available on a monthly, quarterly, or annual basis. And discounts are available for groups. Go to TimmermanReport.com and click on subscribe for more. Okay, so you start looking around again. There's all this energy and vitality in Kendall Square, which you saw before, which was only magnified even more by this time, 2014. And Nimbus, Discovery, 
LLC was one. Now, what did you see when you sized that company? Well, first of all, for people who are not really familiar with it, just what what is Nimbus and what did you observe at that time, 2014? Um, Nimbus is, uh, today, Nimbus is a uh, uh, successful small molecule structure-based drug discovery company. Uh, Nimbus started uh, in 2009. uh, it was founded by Bruce Booth of Atlas Venture and Rami Fred of Schrodinger. And the idea that Rami and um, Bruce had, along with Rich Friesner, who was the founder of Schrodinger, um, uh, saw a number of people, a uh, number of pharmaceutical companies would use computational technology like the ones that uh, Schrodinger developed uh, and would use it as an adjunct, would use it retrospectively, um, not prospectively to really lead, design, make, test, analyze cycles uh, in small molecule R&D. Um, and that they would, you know, they, so they'd buy the software, but they literally wouldn't use it to drive drug discovery programs. And the idea uh, around Nimbus was a little bit like Cortez burning the ships uh, on the shore of the Americas uh, to motivate uh, the, 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 the crew, um, that Nimbus would be formed uh, without labs um, and would do computational first physics-based methodologies to design molecules. Um, and in the first couple of years, uh, 2009, 10, 11, uh, Nimbus Discovery was born and started coming together with a very modest Series A to kind of explore this idea of whether you could find really tractable hits against uh, some really interesting targets that had been tough to drug by others in the industry. Um, and, you know, in this stage, uh, Nimbus had actually shown some success in developing, uh, uh, you know, good binders and molecules that could be used uh, for the starting blocks of what could be a drug. Uh, but we're struggling to kind of translate that forward into an actual product that could be used in patients. Schrodinger had access to some supercomputing assets at the time, right? And so they could do some of the modeling that on computers that was just not really feasible before. Was that part of it? It was. And I think at the time, you know, when, when Nimbus first started, we had more computational power working on any one of the Nimbus programs as the entire pharmaceutical industry had combined. And what we saw at the time from a computational horsepower perspective was a hockey stick in the growth of especially these graphic processing units, these GPUs, not CPUs. Um, these are things like NVIDIA chips. And it just so happened to be uh, this was the type. Uh, this was the time of of Pixar and uh, a number of high video resolution workout in uh, the, the the cinematography industry as well as the video game industry that led to an incredible explosion in chip manufacture that brought on um, these graphical processing units. You couple that with uh, the IT uh, advancements of being able to do cloud computing, and all of a sudden you could access a whole lot of computational resources for physics based based methods, which are not machine learning or AI algorithms, but physics-based methods to actually calculate free energies of, um, you know, molecular binding pieces with proteins. Um, and, you know, we would look at structure and motion and all of these pieces to really understand what could kind of bind it there. But that was one of the reasons behind kind of Nimbus's creation and the ultimate naming of Nimbus uh, Nimbus, uh, with clouds, cloud computing, uh, those pieces. Uh, there was one other uh, little bit of errata, which is it wasn't the first name for Nimbus's. Nimbus's first name was Project Troubled Water. That is a terrible name for a company. <laughs> it's a terrible name for a company. Uh, but it was so named because one of the things um, the, the software would do would be look for high energy waters that were found in a protein structure that could be displaced 
by a small molecule. And that if you could identify those, it could guide you as to how you might do some medicinal chemistry construction in that particular area. And so a lot of those uh, uh, naming illusions kind of came together in the, in the name of Nimbus Discovery. And it also had an unusual business structure, which traces its origins to that 2009 timeframe, the Great Recession. A lot of VCs were walking dead. They were afraid they'd never raise another fund again. Uh, the markets were risk averse. Uh, and so Atlas created this model, the LLC model. How would you describe this? Um, so the, the, uh, exactly that it was the great recession that bore out this idea of how can we think about compartmentalizing returns? We have such attrition in the industry. How can we think about, um, uh, managing that and managing it as effectively as possible? So we created a top co structure, which is the LLC holding company. And then we placed all of the intellectual property of each particular program in a daughter subsidiary underneath it. Now, this is based on an assumption that there would not be an IPO market because there were no biotech IPOs at all. So if you're going to do drug discovery, you're going to have to um, make things that pharma will acquire. Exactly. So this was designed for partnering. It was designed that you could use... Um, Instead of a license structure, you could do an M&A. You could acquire one of the subsidiaries, and then you wouldn't have to acquire the rest of the company. And, and to me, coming from the buy side of the pharmaceutical group, um, this made a lot of sense. Every time there was a company that had a, a program, we usually just wanted that one program. It's because we had a strategy about you know um, deubiquitation that we wanted that one program, not maybe what that whole company had. And so the idea behind that Nimbus structure um, made a ton of sense to me that this would be really efficient in partnering because you could you just talk to a company about only the programs they were interested in. Okay, so that's attractive to the big company buyers. But if you're going to join the little company, why is this advantageous to the little company and its investors? Um, it, it makes a lot of sense because that flexibility in partnership and funding allows you to choose many different kind of paths. And so over the years, we've done everything from licensing agreements like we've done with um, uh, uh, Genentech around uh, IRAC4, uh, or very more recently with Eli Lilly around AMPK activation or option deals like we did with Celgene or acquisitions. It gives a lot more flexibility. What's amazing is when it is in an acquisition mode, um, the program is acquired, but not the people. Um, everybody comes back to work the next day and keeps working on the pipeline. Um, and it really is a remarkable thing. I mean, you hear a lot about uh, biotech companies, if they've gone public and then they're acquired for their lead asset, um, everybody kind of you know goes their separate way. Maybe one or two people might stay with the acquiring company, but most people go their separate ways. And then there's a press release 18 months later that says the management team has got back together. The thing with Nimbus is we've been able to do that this, the day after a deal. Uh, everybody stays and, and keeps working on the, the pipeline of the programs. It's quite remarkable. So if you have a good group of people and you'd like to keep churning out hits, like if you think you have a good band, you'd like to keep the band together. Exactly. Um, and you, you don't need to entice these people necessarily with stock options for an imaginary IPO uh, windfall someday. You can reward them through giving them shares or partial ownership in these programs that they worked on. Yeah. And if the programs are successful, they'll get a nice check and they'll continue to go back to work 
the next day and do it with you know the next program. And and uh, and and that's what we do. And I will say there is one very important decision we made in in thinking about equity for employees and motivation. And you could decide this a bunch of different ways, but we made a very conscious decision at Nimbus um, to to give um, every employee and and every investor only gets equity in the top company, um, the holding company that holds everything. And this is this is important um, because. Uh, when you're in R&D, some programs uh, succeed, actually a few programs succeed, and most programs fail. Um, and and um, we are looking for um, people who really would want to be part of a community, would want to build a pipeline, um, uh, more missionaries rather than mercenaries. Um, so, so we could have incentivized individuals. If you work on program A, you get equity in A. Uh, if you work on B, you get in B. If A is successful, the A person gets rewarded, but the B person doesn't. Um, I, I will say it was a really important decision to do it. What we did, which was everybody gets equity in everything, evenly. And you know, when when we had our first success, where we had a, a large M and A, when Gilead bought uh, our first drug in the clinic, our ACC inhibitor. Um, yes, of course, there were celebrations, but everybody benefited. Investors benefited. So do employees. Um, including the employees who are working on this backwater little program called Tick Two that at the time nobody cared about, but thank goodness we treated everyone equitably uh, through that process. Well, it also creates uh, the, that shared sense of uh, prosperity rather than well, you don't want to create per perverse incentives where you know people are incentivized to keep a, a program going when it's not likely to succeed. <laughs> exactly, keeping everybody on the same footing, whether it's investors uh, and employees, is actually one of the important things about a private company structure that I do think we got right for at least what Nimbus has delivered. Okay. Okay. So you joined 2014. So yeah. this is five years in. Um, there's already an established crew there. Don Nicholson was CEO, Rosanna Capeller, CSO. Um, what, what was the environment uh, like? Don and I were hired together. Um, uh, th this is, uh, I, and I think uh, they'll forgive me for telling this story, but I think it was a really interesting time. Um, uh, Nimbus was looking for um, a CEO and a chief business officer, uh, and a company called Padlock Therapeutics was looking for a CEO and a, C a chief business officer. Um, and at the time, Atlas had an interest in both um, and conducted a uh, an interview of, of two CEOs and, and two chief business officers. So Don Nicholson and Jeb Kuyper and, and Mike Gilman uh, and Sam Truex. Uh, and then we all interviewed with each other uh, to see what the best fit was. Um, and it ended up uh, just naturally that that Don and I were gravitating to uh, Nimbus and, and Mike and Sam kind of went to Padlock and had great success there. Yep. Um, uh, real small world kind of effects. Um, but as uh, I'll never forget, um, uh, Don was living in Northern Jersey at the time I was living uh, near Philly. Uh, we met in Princeton for a kind of a 45 minute introduction. You're thinking about Nimbus, I'm thinking about Nimbus, let's talk about it. Um, and we we were there for two hours. Uh, we really hit it off. Uh, we really had a very similar vision for Ford integrating Nimbus. Um, it was important, though, uh, for both of us that the board hire Don first, so that it really was his decision that he wanted to hire me. And I'm fortunate that he he made that decision. So so he kind of joined in late summer, and I joined in October of 2014. Okay. Okay. So had Nimbus been established at this point, or was it still like more of the the concept? So Nimbus at that time had established some of the early drug discovery 
um, uh, capabilities, uh, but had not moved those capabilities forward into preclinical development or, or certainly the clinic, um, and had struggled a bit on on had done a, a, a few um, early stage partnerships, but but nothing uh, nothing transformative, uh, and they were still on their Series A. So um, uh, they had not had a a, a full time CEO uh, through that that period. So Don was the first CEO at, at Nimbus. Um, uh, and uh, Jonathan Montague, actually, for for personal reasons, had kind of left the uh, uh, the country, and they were looking for a chief business officer. And I think the mindset that both Don and I took uh, to Nimbus at the time was partner with Rosanna and really drive the company uh, to levels that it hadn't been before. So we changed the name from Nimbus Discovery to Nimbus Therapeutics. Uh, we made a tough call to partner out what had been the lead program, Iraq Four, with Genentech at the time. Uh, and take the ACC program, which would actually be the, the the second child, so to speak, in that list, and actually forward integrate that into the clinic, uh, which we did into 2015. Um, and that was a a great move uh, for us at the time. ACC was the target for NASH. For NASH, yeah, acetyl-CoA carboxylase, which was a, uh, uh, a a metabolic processing step to kind of add a carbon as, as you're kind of synthesizing energy in the body. Mm-hmm. And non-alcoholic ste- uh, steatohepatitis, NASH, big uh, chronic liver disease that uh, everybody in pharma was interested in. Uh, at that time, maybe making a comeback now, but that's an aside. Um, okay, so was that the kind of watershed moment for Nimbus to really validate its whole model, like both <laughs> reward the business model, but also validate its discovery methods when when the ACC program was licensed out? Um, well, you know, at the time, what we really wanted to to see was that if and I think the fundamental idea here was you really only validate a discovery um, a group, a technology, a process once you have a product that's in patients. And so that was actually the main thrust of what we were trying to do. And taking ACC into the clinic and designing the phase two was the was really the, the strategy we wanted to take forward. Um, of course, we talked to pharmaceutical companies about whether they'd be interested in, but at the time we were maybe even thinking of making a comeback and changing from the LLC model and being a public company at the time. Um, we, we then made a trip out to California to Burlingame and uh, met the, the team at Gilead, uh, Norbert Bischerberger and, and the rest of the team there, still very heavily at the time. This was John Milligan, the CEO, uh, involved in Nash um, and had uh, an incredible presentation where they saw that Nash would really tr- require polypharmacy combination therapy um, and uh, that, that we had something special in our hands. Uh, and uh, they made truly made an offer we couldn't refuse that, that ended up being $400 million up front with another $200 million just in a couple months when the phase two started. Um, that, that was for sure a validation of everything we had done uh, and, and, and clearly a deal that we wanted to enter into. And as we discussed before, the investors get rewarded, the employees get rewarded, the whole company stays together. Um, it's a, it was a celebration. It was a celebration. And I, I remember distinctly, kind of like everybody just kind of came back the next day. Now, one of the things at the time was it was a little bit odd because we we were not a huge company. We didn't have a lot of programs. We didn't have a lot of people. I mean, when I joined, I was employee net 13. Don was net 12, I believe. Uh, we were a much smaller organization. We were probably maybe 30 people by that point in time. Um, but with a much smaller set of programs in the pipeline, and we're back to preclinical. And, and that led to uh, a discussion around, wow, this model seems validated. Let's make this work. 
Um, and that's that's kind of where we we've described Nimbus's story a bit as chapters. And that was kind of the end of chapter one. And so we started chapter two, which was let's upregulate the investment, let's build out more of discovery, um, and let's make a transition uh, into development. Um, and that that really began the next the next path for Nimbus. So where was Tick Two while this uh, re- strategic reassessment was happening? Um, so Tick Two was in the portfolio. We've been working on it for a long time, but it was it was a, a distant, low priority uh, program as we kind of nurtured it along because we were capital limited. We were putting capital into the ACC program and other pieces. Um, now it became kind of one of the more leading programs, but it still wasn't one of the more advanced. And so we added uh, a, a number of other programs, uh, many of which since have been terminated. Uh, we've certainly had a lot of attrition at Nimbus. That's actually one of the recipes for our success was actually taking attrition. Uh, but it was there and it was kind of moving along forward toward uh, toward the clinic at the time. Well, somebody once said, if you're going to fail, fail fast and fail cheap. Uh, exactly. And that led us into to 2017, uh, where we formed a relationship with Celgene. So uh, George Golombeski, Tom Daniels, and the, the entire option deal structure uh, was something that was uh, quite interesting to us. And they had an, uh, a program in, uh, or they had a product at psoriasis, so Tesla at the time, that they were very interested in in coupling with TIC2. And they believed in the human genetics of TIC2, just as we did. Um, and we're very interested in uh, forming a relationship where they'd have an option to acquire that after phase 1B data in psoriasis patients. And so in 2017, uh, we we put that deal together and began collaborating with Celgene. And how far along was that program at that point? So um, uh, this was a, a very interesting decision point for Nimbus. So we had been working on selectivity for the catalytic domain, the JH1 domain of uh, TIC2, and we had gotten good selectivity. Um, but we had found uh, that the uh, JH2 uh, pseudokinase domain, uh, that we could actually inhibit the, the protein. We didn't know that you could, we know you could target that and get selectivity. We didn't know that you could inhibit the protein. We had figured that out. And uh, made the decision to switch and fully invest in that program. So that was in lead optimization. Um, and that was what we really kind of saw was the vision of the, the program to achieve massive levels of selectivity and use that all of that computational horsepower we described to, to really drive uh, and create a, an unprecedented molecule, which we ultimately believe we've come up with. Did you, how aware were you of some of the competitive efforts at that time on Tick 2 the only the only program we we knew of uh, was that there was a program at Bristol Myers Squibb. Um, uh, it, we it, it was not clear the level of priority it was uh, for for BMS at that time, and this was before the big data readout that changed people's minds about Tick Two, which was the Phase Two B data readout for uh, what became known as Decravacitinib, the Bristol uh, drug just recently approved as So Tick Two. Great brand name choice uh, on their part. Uh, but that was uh, approved quite recently. But that phase 2B data came out in September 2018. So this was 2017. It was before anyone. So there really were just the zealots, um, folks like Robert Plenge uh, and Rupert Vesey, who were at Celgene at the time, uh, who really believed in TIC2 as a target, along with uh, ourselves at Nimbus. Now, what was their conviction around TIC2? If you could selectively inhibit this target, it would do what? Well, what we what we find are the human genetics are so compelling. One of the best genetically validated targets for autoimmune disease because um, uh, there is a loss of function mutation uh, in human beings. Um, 
both heterozygote and homozygote loss of functions. And it's fairly common. In fact, the homozygote loss of function mutation. So these are people, um, they've got two copies, one from mom, one from dad, where their tick tube really doesn't signal. Uh, that happens in about one in 600 Caucasians. Um, and the heterozygote, where you have one copy that doesn't signal and one that does, um, is a much more frequent mutation. Um, uh, these uh, folks with these mutations uh, actually are granted something amazing, which is they seem to be resistant to autoimmune disease. They don't seem to get autoimmune disease, a range of autoimmune diseases, not just psoriasis, uh, but ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, type 1 diabetes. I mean, incredibly protective. What's remarkable about that data set is you can look at the medical records of these individuals. And when uh, this work has been done, these large FIWAS analysis, you don't find those people are at any higher risk of any kind of common disease. They're not at more cancer risk. Uh, they're not really at more infection risk. They're, they're not um, uh, at, in cardiovascular risk or any of these concerns. And so the idea behind TIC2 was if you could selectively inhibit it, could you phenocopy that loss of function mutation? So for most of us who don't have these mutations, uh, but have autoimmune disease, could you take a pill? Uh, that, that would give you those same benefits of somebody who was born uh, with that. And that was the idea about uh, targeting TIC2 as target. The challenge was uh, TIC2 is highly homologous with the other four Jack family or other three Jack family members. So there's Jack1, Jack2, Jack3, and TIC2. Um, a, a little bit of the runt of the litter actually discovered first and given the very simple name tyrosine kinase 2. Uh, then, as work had been evolved on those protein structures, uh, you found the Janus kinase is so named as uh, the two-headed god, um, uh, and JAK1 was named because they always signal through pairs or, tetra or uh, trimers or tetramers. Um, but the interesting thing about TIC2 is it never forms a homodimeric pair. TIC2 never pairs with TIC2. It always pairs with uh, JAK1 or 2 to control a variety of cytokine signaling. And so the, the challenge always had been drugging it, drugging it successfully. And that's where two things were needed, going after the pseudokinase domain. And I give it to Bristol-Myers Squibb for getting there first and understanding that you could target the pseudokinase domain. And they did that with the Kravacidinib. Um, Our molecule, NDI034858, um, uh, was able to really drive selectivity to a profound level. And of course, those jack kinases that you referenced, those had already been drugged. Um, people had had done lots of good hard work, and uh, and so those were validated products, like on the market. Uh, absolutely, uh, tofacitinib, Zeljans was uh, from Pfizer, the first kind of pan jack, probably mostly jack one, some jack two activity as well. Um, a successful program, successful product to help patients with autoimmune disease. Um, but with unforeseen outcomes that have led to uh, a black box warning, things like venous thromboembolism and other um, you know, stroke outcomes, um, uh, the the next generation still were kind of pan jack. So uh, baricitinib, olument, uh, apatacitinib, Rinvoc, uh, which is doing very well. Uh, but they all ended up with kind of black box warnings around their safety risk. Um, what we saw from the human genetics with TIC2 is it shouldn't do that. I, I talked about these loss of function mutations um, with TIC2. If you have a heterozygote loss of function mutation in, in JAK1, uh, that is a skid phenotype. That's bubble boy disease. Uh, if you lost both, uh, that's really not viable. Um, so there is a very different safety sensitivity across the JAK family members because of the cytokines they control and signaling. So you really wanted to target TIC2. Okay. Okay. So you took this Nimbus into the clinic. We did. Yeah. We took it into the clinic and uh, started this 
incredibly selective allosteric inhibitor um, in a in a phase one program um, uh, under option with with uh, Celgene at the time. I had uh, so in in 2018. Uh, uh, Don stuck, uh, uh, stood back from uh, Nimbus and now is in board roles and enjoying that kind of part of his life. And, and uh, the board asked me to step in as CEO uh, in 2018. Um, and we were preparing to uh, take our program into the clinic. Um, and January of 2019, we learned that Bristol-Myers Squibb is going to take over Celgene. It's announced here at the, the JP Morgan conference. Huge, huge wow. deal. And it sent shockwaves through the industry. Uh, it did. It's changed a, a lot of things, but it changed a lot for for Nimbus as well. Um, so we were competing against Bristol Myers Squibb with Celgene, uh, working. Uh, we we were developing our Tick Two program. They had Otesla uh, and an option to acquire ours. Um, uh, the uh, antitrust review of the Celgene Bristol merger required them to divest Otesla. Um, the the option on the the Nimbus molecule though they didn't need to divest they had not finished phase threes for the the drug now known as Sotic two or Dacrafacitinib and if those had failed um, they they would be able to option the Nimbus molecule uh, without a problem of, of course those didn't fail those were successful right right so they divested Otesla to Amgen I believe and they still but now with this pending merger they had two Tick two programs. Uh, and and these are the two leaders, as far as you and anybody else knew. So um, this posed something of a antitrust issue. Um, it 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 posed quite a concern um, uh, for 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 us. Uh, and this is kind of well documented in the public domain. So the, their merger had completed. Um, it's just we were progressing our molecule, and it was coming up for an option. Um, and uh, in 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 twenty twenty one. Um, we had uh, that option come up, um, and we had communicated. This is all public record that uh, we we strongly suggested because Decravacit it was going to be viable. Their phase threes were successful. That was known uh, that they simply pass on the option. Uh, they they elected not to. Uh, they elected to um, uh, go to acquire our program, uh, which would then truly give them uh, both of the Alisteric Tick two programs. Um, and uh, we disagreed with that choice. We thought it was anti-competitive. Um, and uh, unfortunately, the two parties couldn't reach agreement um, initially amicably. Uh, and that led to a lawsuit where we, we um, uh, accused Bristol at Nimbus of uh, uh, committing antitrust violations in the United States. They, they kind of countersued for breach of contract. Uh, and the two parties were heading toward the federal district court in New York. Um, uh, this was... Uh, uh, a quite tenuous and interesting time through through most of 2021. Uh, thankfully, cooler heads prevailed, uh, and uh, we settled with Bristol uh, amicably uh, at the very beginning of last year, a year ago today. One year ago, and and this reverted full ownership rights of the Tick Two program to Nimbus. Yeah. So, it, uh, uh, thankfully, we've been working on it the whole time, but the it resolved any questions of kind of ownership, option, and interest, and so all rights returned to us. Yes. Uh huh. And in the meantime, what had been happening in terms of its clinical development and the value that uh, you could ascribe to this asset? Again, I, I really appreciate uh, both uh, our board and the investors during this time because we made the case that. Um, while we actually were in a legal dispute and it was uncertain that the right thing to do was keep the medicine moving forward toward patients and that the worst thing to do would that would be that we would pause after a phase 1b uh, so we started not one but two phase 2b studies 
uh, one in psoriasis, uh, and then a second in psoriatic arthritis, and and began re- recruiting those. And these are big, large, two hundred and sixty patient uh, studies. Um, uh, the the psoriasis one actually uh, read out uh, in in November. It's orally available, small molecule. How often is it administered? Once daily. Once very daily. very nice PK profile. Uh, we we really like uh, this. is a twenty four hour half life. It's it's a, a nice once daily molecule. And you had your first. Uh, phase two data readout on psoriasis yes. just a couple of months ago. Just a couple of months ago. Yeah. So in, in, in November, we read out the data in psoriasis. Um, we have not disclosed that data. Uh, we've now publicly disclosed that it'll come out at the American Academy of Dermatology meeting, uh, which is in March of this year. Uh, so very excited to share that with the world. But we did share uh, that the study was successful, that uh, the primary endpoint was meet, as well as the secondary endpoints. Um, and, and these are the big registrational endpoints in psoriasis. Uh, it's called the psoriasis activity and severity index, POSI. Um, and you look at the number of patients that have a 75%, 90%, or 100% reduction. And that, that 100% is the real bar. That's clear skin. Um, and uh, you're looking for uh, a significant improvement in the number of patients that achieve that over time. And so while we haven't shared the exact data, we have shared that the study was successful. 260 patients, placebo controlled. Yep. So you've uh, you got a good sense of what you have and what its eventual commercial product profile is really going to look like. Yes. You described it as potentially best in class. Having having already seen the BMS phase three data, that, that uh, led to their FDA approval just yes. a few months previous. Um, you did not divulge the full data, as you say. Yeah. But um, this clearly set the table for um, the the sale to Takeda. It did. Tell tell me a little bit about that process. Like, how did that? How did this work? Well, I have a lot of thanks for our, our, our current chief business officer, who I've worked with for eight years. Has been with uh, uh, us the whole time since I joined uh, Nimbus Abbas Kazimi. Um, that we've kept great relationships with pharmaceutical companies, and and you know the moment. Um, we had the the news that Bristol was going to acquire Celgene. We had companies come out and say, you know, we've seen the light. We've seen the data from that phase two B of of Bristol's uh, that tick two allosteric tick twos could be really something. We'd love to keep in touch, and so we've kept in touch with um, interested pharmaceutical party, parties now for for years. Um, we're kind of always at a distance till we would resolve and and could you know engage them. Uh, in a way that actually allowed us to share information. And once we settled the relationship with uh, BMS, then we were able to do that. Um, and once we've been able to do that, uh, there certainly were a lot of parties interested. Uh, I would say there was still a big question in many people's minds as to whether or not the tick twos were actually going to be a distinct class or whether they were going to get a black box as well. And I give huge credit to the decision-making and the scientific and regulatory prowess at, at BMS uh, because uh, although we were ha- are competitive with them and, and certainly was contentious for a period of time, what they did in getting Sotik2 approved with a, a clean label without a black box was was a great thing. It helped establish the class. Um, and that happened in September of this year. Uh, it just so happened our trial had fully enrolled by that time and actually was winding up its its clinical operations and was moving into analysis. So between September and just a couple of weeks later in November, we knew we would have uh, our full data set in. So it was an incredibly exciting time to see when we opened the envelope of whether or not we would have a competitive best-in-class agent. And, and what I've shared publicly many times before is that we were looking for uh, improved efficacy with comparable safety. And uh, 
I can say as a CEO, we believe we've achieved that, but I actually think the right thing to do is to actually share the data in a proper, proper scientific form. There's lots of data in a 260 patient uh, trial with five arms, four active and placebo. What does that look like? How do all the endpoints, how does the safety add up? It's the full package, but we do believe that this looks like it can be an approvable medicine. And, and, uh, and certainly there were kind of a lot of parties interested in that data under CDA at that time. Um, and uh, we're very fortunate uh, to have uh, Takeda uh, be the company that's going to take this forward. They are 100% committed and, and um, uh, want to and need to make this successful for them. And it's great to see how it's, it's energized their share price actually after announcing the deal. Yeah, so they and a bunch of other companies, they look at the data under confidentiality agreements, they like what they see, a bidding war commences, and you get to $4 billion up front for for this single asset. How'd that happen? Um, I think there's a strong belief that the agent is going to be uh, an approved best-in-class agent, not just in psoriasis, but in other indications. Earlier, uh, as we're taping this at J.P. Morgan, earlier today, Chris Berner for BMS, you know, described over $4 billion a year in revenue of a, what will be a highly profitable product for, for Sotik2. Um, that, that is going to be kind of a, a, a very large drug uh, for them. I, I know for Takeda and for the other parties that were looking at this, they believe the same is quite possible with the, the Nimbus Tick 2 That's what they project. But it's still new. We, don't, still new. we don't know this yet. True. And you haven't yet had a readout on the psoriatic arthritis? Uh, that trial should read out uh, this coming year, uh, but we don't have data on that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But that will be in Takeda's hands. It will, yes. Uh, and and it, here's the interesting thing, Luke. Um, just like we noticed, um, you know, biotech companies get acquired for the lead program, uh, Takeda is acquiring our Tick 2 subsidiary. So they actually get the lead program. They get all of the data around it, the regulatory interactions, all of that. They also get all of the tick 2 compounds we've ever worked on. And there are backups and others that are interesting in other kind of areas and spaces. They really get everything tick 2 uh, from Nimbus, which which allows them to really kind of transplant a, a fulsome program as opposed to even just a single asset. And as we discussed earlier, you're selling the program, not the whole company. No, no there's no employees in that, in that subsidiary. So everybody can stay at Nimbus. So... What, you have a celebration and everybody goes back to work the next day? I know, it's unbelievable. Uh, it really is. Uh, just like I said, in other companies, you'll see 18 months later, companies get, you know, management team gets back together. Um, no, it allows us to kind of keep keep on working. Um, and, you know, we've always kept, uh, you know, despite a company that was ready and capable to start phase three, we, we kept it a small organization comparatively at 80 people um, working on a portfolio of programs, Tick 2 only just being one of them. We've got other programs in the clinic like HPK1 and a full pipeline behind that, um, that there's actually kind of plenty to do. Uh, we'll continue to uh, work on Tick 2 on Takeda's behalf uh, even after the deal closes. Uh, we did that with um, our ACC inhibitor Nash with Gilead uh, for, I think, almost over a year. So we'll, we'll continue to kind of support, but they'll be running and leading it, and that will wane off uh, probably geometrically over time. Mm-hmm. You're all there in the Boston Cambridge community. You can you, know, you still see them on on the tea or, <laughs> or at the coffee shop. Um, so what's next for Nimbus? Well, um, we described so if we describe the time up through the Gilead transaction and Nash as chapter one, we, we're kind of describing what's led up to this point, kind of a bit like the novel of Nimbus um, as chapter two, and now we're ready to start chapter three. Um, our mission is to design breakthrough medicines, but I think it's gone beyond that 
for uh, for a lot of us who've been there of of really establishing a great R&D organization that that really has uh, the chance to make a real impact and be notable through our industry. Um, you know, one of the things that, you know, as a student of the industry that I've always seen is these smaller R&D facilities across pharmaceutical uh, companies have had outsized impact uh, on creating uh, really what were blockbuster drugs. I mean, if you look at, you know, Merck, you know, there, there are some successes that came out of the, the big campus in New Jersey, but it was Merck Frost in Montreal that has six blockbusters, including Singular, that came out of that. Um, when I was at um, GSK, um, big London, Philadelphia area kind of, uh, you know, transatlantic company. It was actually Research Triangle Park in, in North Carolina, which is a smaller, kind of more integrated R&D organization that had much more success scientifically in creating drugs. Um, Sandwich in the UK and the Pfizer network was far more productive than the site I was at, which was Groton, this huge sprawling uh, R&D campus. And we see this time again, the Park Davis facility uh, in Ann Arbor. Um, and we we look at Nimbus a little bit the same as a small group of of expert um, uh, drug discovery and development uh, folks who know how to apply bleeding edge technology. I mean, we still write our own AI and machine learning algorithms, but we don't talk to folks about that as a platform. We let our products do the do the talking, and so we're really excited about this next chapter with a, a drug in solid tumor patients uh, in the clinic right now, and. Um, two more clinical starts next year and two after that in 25. So if you wanted to spend a bunch of money and build a bigger organization, clearly you could, but you're choosing not to. You want to stay lean and mean is what I'm hearing uh, and stick with your knitting, what you're good at, the, the discovery, the lead optimization, the early development. Let other people do what they're good at. There are benefits to scale. Uh, but in R&D, I don't know that you see them. I, I think when you look at um, R&D organizations, you look at heads of R&D roles, you're often finding them uh, disaggregating and breaking up R&D performance into smaller units over time um, at, because they've seen what biotech can do. Um, we don't want to break out of that mold. Our capacity is greater than it was certainly when we switched from chapter one to chapter two. I mean, at the, that point, it was just a validation of whether anything would work or not. I think we've gotten the scale right now, and we're very excited about uh, where this can take us. You know, hearing you describe this, it reminds me of the old Margaret Mead quote, you know, never doubt that a small group of people can change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has. Couldn't have said it better. Jeb Kuyper, thank you so much for joining me on The Long Run. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timberman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was a sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.